If you would turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to begin reading this morning in verse 3 and continue on to verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul, speaking on behalf of himself and Timothy, says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Let's pray together. Father, we humble ourselves before you and your word, and we pray that you would give us wisdom to receive it with faith and love and with zeal, that we would know your word, that we would love the wisdom of your word, and that you would help us, Lord, to, by faith, hold on to not just the promises of your word, but also its precepts, that we would seek to live by them, by your grace, by the cross of Christ, covering us from all of our sin. We pray, Father, that you would help us to live in a way that would be pleasing to you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's that time of year again. When the Hallmark Channel plays Christmas music, Christmas movies, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for the entire month. Is anyone here excited about that? I didn't see any hands raised. I don't know what desperate soul came up with this idea. Harebrained idea to begin with to celebrate Christmas for an entire month in the summer after it's already celebrated for three months. At first, it started as one day, Christmas Day. Then it became Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. Then it became the 12 days of Christmas. Then it became the whole month of December. And then now, for some people in this country, it starts in October and goes till basically February by the time some people never take their Christmas lights down. They're crazy for Christmas. When will it ever end? Given the fact that I'm a Scrooge, it shouldn't surprise you at all that my favorite Christmas movie is The Grinch. Of course, his problem was that his heart was two times too small, we're told. That's why he was so annoyed by the noisy Christmas festivities in Whoville, and that's why he disguised himself as Santa Claus and stole all their presents, right? Almost everyone here knows that story. If you haven't, go get the book. You'll see. But then he was shocked and surprised that after stealing all their Christmas trees and all their presents and all their treats and all their goodies, if you will, the next morning he didn't hear crying and complaining 
but rather the gladful, joyful song of Christmas all over again. It didn't change their heart whatsoever. And as a result, the, the, the book says that his own heart grew three times size larger. And as a result, he was able to join with the rest of the citizens of Whoville in the giving and receiving of presents. Well, in a sense, you could say that in our passage this morning, that the church in Corinth has in some way played the role of the Grinch in reference to the Apostle Paul and to his co-laborer, Timothy. They have in some ways closed their hearts to their ministry and to particularly to the gospel that Paul has been preaching. Someone has come into the church and has caused them to distrust Paul and to question his motives, to grow bitter against him, and to become suspicious in every way of his ministry. And a big part of this second letter to the Corinthians, you'll find, if you haven't already gotten the theme of this, constantly he's having to defend his ministry to the Corinthians because they have continued to point out some flaw in him in one way or the other. Uh, They've turned their hearts against him. And so literally in this text, Paul is telling them, I have opened my hearts to you, he and Timothy have. He's saying, no, just reciprocate. Open wide your hearts to us, he says. And literally in the Greek, he says, to enlarge your heart in the same way that the Grinch's heart was enlarged three times the size. He says it can be enlarged by the Holy Spirit, and you ought to enlarge it in order to receive us in the same way we've received you. You see, just like the Grinch who had made these false assumptions about the people of Whoville, the church in Corinth had made a number of false assumptions against the Apostle Paul and against his ministry. And so again, he's telling them, open your hearts to us. It's interesting, this week I was part of a, a pastoral ordination service for a friend of mine, in Connecticut, who was one of my ruling elders, but who now has just recently taken a call to a church in western Michigan. And uh, he had his preaching license for a number of years when I was in Connecticut with him, and I encouraged him to go to a seminary. And so the whole time I've been here, he's been taking classes at seminaries. He's just finished, and now he's just taken his first call. So it was a privilege to be able to go there and to be a part of his ordination service. And as you know, it's always a delight to witness uh, when a pastor is first ordained and installed in that particular church and how warmly the church receives him and his family into that fellowship. But in every situation, as you might imagine, it's only a matter of time before the honeymoon ends. And then the hard work of marriage begins, right? Everyone seems to be happy with their pastor at first, until he starts to change things just a bit. Until he starts to step on a few toes here or there. And as a result, people begin to question his motives. Of course, we know that this is nothing different than what God does. God does not let us remain stagnant in our sins. He tends to shake things up a bit. He tends to step on your toes He tends to not just encourage, but also to correct and rebuke so that you can continue to grow in your faith. And any servant of the Lord, any pastor, minister, elder in the church is going to do the same thing. 
They're going to point out the sins that you don't want to talk about, point out the flaws that you may not see. And if he's doing his job, there are going to be people in the church that will be upset with him at some point in time. It's guaranteed to happen. So as visiting pastors, going to another church is always fun for us to talk about those issues. Because you can say whatever you want, and your own congregation can't hear what you're saying. right? And uh, it's interesting. Um, we all make that same exhortation to every congregation. We warn them of what it's going to be like and how they're going to be tempted to grow embittered against their pastor. But just like with engaged couples, churches that have just taken on their pastor, like, oh, it'll never happen to us. We love him so. And the rest of us pastors are just laughing because we know that's not true. You don't even know that guy yet. You don't love him as much as you think you do. And he doesn't love you as much as he thinks he does either. So it's a matter of time before you both grow up. And it's also a matter of time before some conflict occurs. So again, my rule of thumb for membership in any church, whether you're a pastor or whether you're a regular person, is that sinners join churches. Sinners tend to sin. And sinners who have been sinned against tend to sin against them. Right? So it's a matter of time before conflict happens. Thankfully, God has foreseen all this and has given us a way to work through conflict and to try to see eye to eye in some of these matters. So none of this should be shocking to us whatsoever. But what often becomes surprising is how much and how often it's the leadership of the church that begins to have the conflict the most. They're working with each other more closely, so you see this more right. And I, let me just say as an aside, as far as I know, I'm not upset with any of the elders in this church. And as far as I know, they're not upset with me, so this has nothing to do with anything going on here. Not today, maybe tomorrow, but not today. But in this particular case, um, I had the privilege of laying hands on my friend and also having a hand on uh, some of the elders that are now his co-laborers in Christ. And as I was praying for him and for his ministry, I was praying that the Lord would not put a wedge between him and his fellow elders because it happens so easily, so quickly. Even on the mission field, you can have people that have been working together for years and who love the Lord and who only want to serve him in the best way possible, but then all of a sudden, mm, they can't stand each other. It happens so easily, and the devil loves it. And so I was praying that these elders would be watchful and that the pastor would be watchful about this possible temptation and that they would seek to stand up for one another to, to preserve each other's reputation, but also to speak truth to one another when need be, to speak that truth in love. And that's exactly what many of the leaders in the church in Corinth were not doing for the Apostle Paul. Uh, we're seeing the reason why this letter is as long as it is is because half of it he's defending himself from all these accusations that have been brought against him again and again in the church. And it seems that there are very few people that have stood up for him to the point where he basically has to give his own defense time and time again. But don't get me wrong. In some cases, there may be a very good reason. I want to make sure I clarify that for those of you who have been on the end of some very bad pastoral relations. Sometimes there can be a very good reason to break fellowship with a pastor Upon legitimate and egregious sin that 
has happened. Uh, just recently, a friend of mine has brought an alleged accusation against another person in ministry that was very serious in nature, the type of sin that was so heinous it could not be overlooked and had to be addressed. And thankfully, uh, we were able to address it in some manner thus far. But what this person has done has actually caused one of the little children in the church, one of the sheep, if you will, to walk away from the Lord and the church altogether. You just can't let that kind of thing go. It has to be addressed. So out of everything that I say today, understand that there is a, there's a twofold cutting of this sword. You want to make sure that you preserve the honor of the man who ought to be honored, but at the same time, when a man needs to be confronted, that you do that as well. Okay? So don't... I always... I feel like there's... It's, I, not only, I not only get in trouble for the things I say, I get in trouble for the things I don't say, which makes my job very difficult, so you better pray for me. But anytime a minister fails morally in a public manner, the church becomes a laughing stock in the community. And it happens again and again and again. I mean, I've told you my story numerous times. I've worked with three out of the four pastors that I've served with are no longer in the ministry. Three of them have fallen in egregious sin. And the church has split. The church has lost many people. The community is wondering, what in the world is going on with these churches? Because of major fault lines in an individual's life. It's one of the most effective strategies that the devil can use. And he uses it every week. On any given Sunday, these things happen. John Calvin, uh, the reformer, said, The man who wishes to make himself useful in Christ's service must devote his energies to maintaining the honor of his own ministry. Because if he's not, if he's not watchful, he'll become one of these same poster boys, if you will. But now that I've said that, here in our text this morning, that's not what has happened with the Apostle Paul. In fact, he's, he's saying the exact opposite. He has not committed any egregious sin or heinous act that would cause such accusations to be brought against him again and again and again. There's just no call for it. And if you look in verse 3 of our text, you'll see he's saying we, meaning he and, and Timothy, we have put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. And again, I, I think in another context you've heard me say before that the word that as it's used in the Greek here for obstacle is the word for a, a stumbling stone or a stumbling block, if you will. If you think of sort of a, a cobblestone uh, road, there's one stone that sticks up a little higher than all the others, and as a result, some unsuspecting walker doesn't see that stone, and it causes them to trip and fall right on their face, right? Paul's saying that his ministry has not caused any innocent, naive person to fall from God because of his awful sin. He's not saying he's sinless, but he's saying he's never caused anything like this that would cause this type of accusation brought against him. And as a result, he's saying, he and Timothy, we've been above reproach. There's no reason to undergo this type of scrutiny. Not only have they not done anything disgraceful, but in verse 4, he asserts very strongly as servants of God, they had commended themselves in every way to the church in Corinth. Again, this idea of commendation is a primary theme in this text. It has been mentioned in every single chapter thus far. We're in chapter 6. 
He's going to mention it again in 8 and 10 and 12. You can see this is a huge problem. He should have been commended for all of the sacrifices that he's made in love for them. Instead, he's just constantly, constantly accused of something. And as a result, uh, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, he says, I have been a fool, but you forced me into it, for I ought to have been commended by you, but basically I've had to commend myself. He said, I would never do this, but because even my own, even the leaders who have worked with me have not spoken up for me. They've kept silent. They haven't said anything. And as a result, I'm constantly sort of in the, in the chopping block here, constantly under accusation, and it's not true. And so if you look in verses 4 through 10 in, in the text, he begins to delineate a number of ways in which his ministry has been commendable to God, but then also should have been commended by men instead of him being dishonored. But basically, the, the gist of it is he has been labeled as a phony again and again by some of the church. I, I think I've mentioned to you before the motto of the good state of North Carolina from which I hail. In Latin, esiquam videri, to be rather than to seem. To be rather than to seem. In our day and age, there's a lot of people that seem to be legit and that are not. Paul is saying, I am a legit apostle. I'm not a false apostle. I'm not some weak phony. I'm not someone who's peddling the gospel for money. I'm not any of those things. I'm the genuine article, and so is Timothy. He's the real deal. That's his point here. So let's take a look at a couple of examples that he provides to prove the genuineness of his ministry. First, he speaks of their endurance in verse 4. He says, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, in hardships, in calamities, in beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. Paul's been having a great time in ministry. Can't you tell? He's loving it. And if you've read the book of Acts before, you know that he's not speaking with any type of exaggeration here whatsoever. He has experienced every single one of these things and more. He's not telling them all that has happened or all that has occurred in his particular life. He has experienced all sorts of persecution. Galatia, Thessalonica, Jerusalem, Rome, and many other places. This has happened again and again. This is not abnormal for him, but rather quite normal. But what does this prove other than the fact that the Apostle Paul has had a hard time in ministry? Well, it proves this. They have proven that they are true shepherds of God's flock through their endurance. Because this is the exact thing that the false teachers are not known for. They will not stick around when things get hard. They will not stick around when all of a sudden the law is against them. They will not stick around when they're beginning to be accused like the apostles are. If you remember John chapter 10, Jesus makes it very plain that he's the good shepherd of the sheep, right? Remember that? And he compares his ministry to that of the false teachers, some of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are pretending, if you will, to care for the people. He calls them, what does he call them? Hired hands. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. They're known by me. I love them. They love me. But you're just a hired hand. What does that mean? Well, the biggest difference with the hired hand and the shepherd is this, that when the wolf comes, what does the hired hand do? He runs. 
He leaves his sheep. As a result, some of the sheep are immediately snatched up and eaten, and others are scattered. And he just leaves it in shambles. But what does the good shepherd do? He gets right in there and he fights to protect the sheep, even though he knows that the wolves are coming for him first. The big difference between the Apostle Paul and these false apostles who have been accusing him left and right, he's saying, I have continued to do this when it has not been fun to do it, when it has not been easy to do it, and sometimes outright impossible to do it. Uh, One of the pastors I met with in this ordination service this week had shared with the congregation of how a couple of different factions in the church had tried to run him off, or literally to run him out of town. And then he held his hands wide out and he said, and I'm still standing here today. And I thought, sort of Western gunslinger kind of verbiage there, but it's true, very, very true. In fact, uh, you know, if he's worth this salt, you would hope that all of us would stand, but I, I've run a couple times. I think I've told you before, early on in, in ministry, I got out of the church twice because it was so difficult. I was an idealist. I thought the church was actually full of loving people. Man, was I wrong. It's full of people that are learning to love, but that they're not already there. They don't know how to love perfectly. And sometimes we say some really stupid things and do even stupider things at times. Uh, I'm encouraged by uh, the late John Stott. He was a, a pastor in England He served as a pastor well into his 80s, and he endured throughout his ministry, but he said that his favorite text, the one that he turned to often, was Psalm 55, 6, where David says, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, for I would fly away from this place and be at rest. And I can honestly say that as a pastor, I know exactly what he means. There are times where I just want to run, tired of the fighting tired of the conflict, tired of the accusations. Again, there's nothing happening right now, just in case you're wondering. As an aside, no one's accusing me of things today. But wait till next week. We'll see what happens. But on any given Sunday, any given week, if anyone stands up for the truth of the gospel, there's a sinner who's not going to like what's being said. And then they're coming for you. That's how it works. So I'm, I'm, I'm very encouraged by John Stott, knowing that that was, I mean, he was willing to admit that, first of all, and yet he still endured for, I mean, he had to be a minister for 60 years, or fresh out of seminary. Then in verse 6, Paul adds, we, he says, we commend ourselves not only by our endurance, but also by our purity, by our knowledge, our patience, our kindness, by the Holy Spirit, and genuine love. Not only had they stood their ground against the enemy, if you will, they weren't just preaching against sin, but they were learning to grow in holiness themselves, and the the congregation in Corinth could see that. Again, this wasn't something that was surprising whatsoever. Having served alongside of three pastors that have admitted or been defrocked in the ministry for some kind of sexual impurity, the church today is in so desperate need of men who simply try to live what they say. I mean, not just in, the, in any realm of society, right? When do you see a genuinely honest person today, a, a man of integrity in some position? It's so rare that you see it. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Paul tells his, his companion, he says, let no one despise you because of your youth. They're going to despise you for a lot of reasons, but don't let them despise you for your youth. He says, but rather set an example for the believers in your speech, in your conduct, in your love, in your faith, and in your purity. Obviously, this is a very important facet of Paul's ministry, not just that he would preach the truth to people and point out sin to people, but, but at the same time, he would seek to be an example to them. He would seek to live that life of sanctification, of growing in holiness. Again, it's not that he never had an impure thought. It's not that he never spoke an unkind word. It's not that he never said anything less than loving, but that people knew that he was trying to live a life that's pleasing to God. They ought to be able to see that, and that's what he's telling Timothy. Let them see it so that they, they can't at least slander you for that. They'll slander you for other things, but they can't slander you for your character. It's interesting how Paul mentions the Holy Spirit in the middle of this list, though, which reminds us again that all of these are attributes that come from walking in the Spirit. We can't, we can't manufacture kindness and patience and, and things of that nature. We can feign them, but we can't manufacture them. And it's only as these men of God are truly walking the Spirit that they can set this type of tone in a church. But then look at verses 7 and 8. Paul adds, We also commend ourselves by truthful speech, the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. Again, Paul is pointing out to them that he has told them the truth time and time again, whether they wanted to hear it or not. He stood in the gap. He spoke plainly to them about the oracles of God, plainly about sin, righteousness, the judgment to come, did not hold back whatsoever from these things, regardless of how the people in the church felt about it, and regardless of how the, the community around them responded to it. They didn't change. As Mark mentioned earlier during our prayer, the state house just passed a, a new law that could be used to throw people in prison and cost them $10,000, I think he said, for using the wrong pronouns in reference to a particular gender or not. So what does that mean for us, particularly as preachers? I, had a, I just talked to the preacher this week who said that he's taking all of his sermons offline so that protect the church. And I thought, well, they're going to get me either way. Just a matter of time, right? But does that mean, as Christians, that we're supposed to just keep our mouth shut on the things that the state disagrees with? Does that mean that we just cower in fear? I mean, I think about the disciples in the early chapters of Acts, if you remember, when the state kept saying to them, you can't speak anymore in the name of Christ. You can't use that speech. And then all of a sudden, they're doing it again. And what does Peter say? He says, well, we have to obey God, not men. But if you do that, there are consequences, right? Because, and this is, this is Paul's point. The false teachers would change what they said. They would stop using that language because they know they don't want to face ridicule. They don't want to face hardship. They don't want to face persecution. And therefore, they will never be in prison. They will never be beaten. They will never be stripped 
and hungry and all of those things, you see. He's saying, if that's your mentality, you're a false prophet. You can't avoid that. What does Paul say to Timothy? Again, I love 2 Timothy because he's giving counsel to this younger protege, explaining to him, this is what you have to do in a culture that hates you. He says, 2 Timothy chapter 4, preach the word. What does he say? Be ready in season and when? And out of season. What does he mean? Preach it when it's acceptable and when it's not acceptable. When it's popular, when it's not popular. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth. I'll tell you, you can go to any church in any town in Michigan. Just go downtown, and you will find a church that will preach to your passions, that will welcome you and whatever lust or passions that you have, and they'll tell you how welcoming they are to you. But they will not tell you the truth. They will not love you because they will not love you enough to tell you the truth. They'll lie to your face in order to avoid hardship. There are plenty of false teachers in this state, in our land, and in every time period that there is. They also will not be as welcoming to everyone as they say they are because if you're not one of them in their mindset and you actually think that something is a sin... They won't have anything to do with you. And I can tell you that for sure because I was in the PCUSA and they didn't want me. They would not accept me as a pastor. They could not ordain me because I could not hold to their views. Which is why I'm here until they kick me out of this one. But I'm I'm telling you, this is the culture we're in. I, I'm not telling you to be antagonistic for fun. I'm not telling you just to you know, go rile people up and say mean things just so you can get thrown in jail. I'm not saying that. But at the same time, I'm saying do not cower in fear before the state and before those who threaten hardship against you. Why? Well, it may seem to be an unseasonable time, in our culture right now, but if you remember what I said last week, that's man's perspective, because what does God say? This is the perfect season to preach the gospel. Why? This is the favorable time of salvation. This is the year of jubilee. This is the time. Preach the word. Tell people the truth about the gospel. Tell people about sin. Tell them about the judgment to come. This is the time of mercy. This is the day for them to hear it. Of course, The devil says, this is the worst of times. Don't say a word. Shut your mouth. Cower in fear. Do you not see this as spiritual war? It's funny. I've I've had a couple people recently tell me that, um, you know, the state would never go that far. They would never say that they're going to throw pastors in jail. I'm like, just give it a matter of months maybe years. It's already happened in other countries. It'll happen here too. But he says, preach the word in season and out of season. Can't change that. This is the day of salvation. Still got to be preached. And it's the very reason why Paul says that he speaks the truth by the power of God with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. If you remember in Ephesians chapter 6 with the armor of God illustration, He 
gives all these different parts of the, the armor, but then he shows in one hand he's holding the shield of faith. And then in the other hand, what is he holding? The sword of the Spirit, right? Two different weapons he's holding. One is the Word of God that he uses to convict people of sin, that he uses to encourage weakened believers, that he uses to do all sorts of other things in terms of God's will. If for some reason the preacher stops using God's Word when he preaches, then he no longer has a weapon in his hand. You see, that's what many churches do. They just, we're not going to preach the Word anymore. We're going to preach something else, whatever's acceptable to our culture today. That's what we're going to talk about. There's no power in that. You have to hold up the sword. Even as regular Christians, you have to hold up the sword because it's that one weapon that actually brings conviction. Not just your words, but the words of God. He drives the truth home. Remember, the word is, what, active and powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Ready to divide. Discern. Bring home the conviction of God. But in the other hand, he also says you need to hold the shield of faith. Why? Because as you're trying to win in battle, there's someone shooting at you with flaming darts again and again and again. And in this case, the Apostle Paul has gotten thousands of these darts. Every single time he opens his mouth to speak the truth of the gospel, there's someone accusing him of something else, of some sin that he has not committed, of being a hate monger or whatever it is that that they were saying at that particular time. So the preacher has to constantly take up the shield as he takes up the sword. You can't do one without the other. And, and, and the reason for that is because the, the, there are times in which the minister will be honored, but there are also times when he'll be dishonored. There are times when he'll be slandered, and there will also be times when he's praised. Either way, he's told to preach the truth in season and out of season. But then notice at the end of verse 8, continuing on to verse 10, Paul continually has to take up that shield of faith even as he is responding to their accusations. He keeps using the word as. He says, we were treated as impostors, yet we're true servants. We're treated as unknown, and yet we're well known to you. We're considered to be dying, yet we live. We're as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always con- always rejoicing, as poor, yet always making rich, as having nothing, yet poss- possessing everything. These are accusations that the, the people in the church have been making against him, that he's just this weak, poor loser of a pastor that should never be heard, should never be followed, and you should just cast him to the side. And he's saying, everything that they have said is wrong. They're looking at it from the wrong perspective. They're not looking at it with spiritual eyes. And so he commends himself to them. But he, but he doesn't just continue to tell them the truth devoid of all compassion, right? So, you know, there, there are people today, and, and you've seen them on television. They always get on television somehow. The ones that are the real mean pastors, the ones that are always shouting at everybody and calling them names. I mean, as if every pastor's like that guy. Some of you that went to college, you probably met some of, we would call them courtyard preachers. They would go out in the middle of the courtyard and just start yelling at everybody as if that was going to convince anybody there. No. All they did was start shouting matches with other people who hated him. It didn't, it didn't help whatsoever. Paul says, no, we're, in Ephesians 4.15, he says, you're to speak the truth in love, right? Every time he talks about defending the gospel, he keeps using words like patience and kindness and gentleness. 
He never says to speak harshly at people. He never says to constantly just scream and yell at people. He's not saying that at all, but nevertheless, he's saying to do that boldly. He asked for prayer from the church that he would be able to speak the gospel boldly and yet also gently, patiently, kindly. Because again, he's, he's presenting himself as an ambassador of Christ. He represents this other kingdom that is a kingdom of love, but yet it's a kingdom that also hates sin. And he has to be able to speak to both. So instead of becoming embittered against the church for their lack of trust and for their lack of respect and honor and all these things, he tells them, I have continued to open my heart to you. I have continued to, to love you and, and to be kind to you and gentle and patient with you, even though you've said some horrible things in that regard. He doesn't treat them as they've treated him. He doesn't you know, continue to defend himself just from them in that sense, but he humbles himself. He reveals his inner motives to them. He shows them his weaknesses. He's not trying to make himself better than them. He's trying to show them, look, I... I'm your servant. I have tried to help you. But I'm also God's servant, and I have to tell the truth to you. Notice in verse 11, he he addresses them personally for the first time in this epistle. He says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, saying our heart is wide open to you. Now, he's the the original in the, the beginning of the letter, he says, This is the letter to the church at Corinth. But this is the first time he says, You, Corinthians, I have done this for you time and time again. And then he, he pairs that personal address with then saying, you're, you're like my children. He doesn't mean it like, well, you're just a bunch of dumb kids. He means it like, I have been a father to you. From the very beginning of your faith, I have been the one who has led you in the ways of Christ. I've helped you to grow up in your faith. I have opened wide my heart to you. And if you remember in his epistle to the Thessalonians, he's saying, I've treated you like a mother and a father. I've, I've continued to show love for you, and yet you have constantly raised your fist to me. Again, parents, you know what that's like every time. When a kid at times gets to a certain age in their life where they begin to question and wonder and, and challenge you in a number of ways, these church members have grown up, if you will, but yet not quite enough. It's not the Apostle Paul, though, that has acted like the Grinch in this particular instance. I mean, there was a time where the Apostle Paul was a Grinch, right? I mean, you don't get any Grinchier than the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9 where he was dragging people by their hair down the street, taking you to jail for preaching the gospel of Christ and and standing by as they're being stoned to death. He was clearly the Grinch. But then when the Lord saved him, full of compassion, even for the Jews who hate his guts. He's willing to have his name blotted out from the Lamb's book of life so that they could come to faith in Christ. Like Moses, it's very similar. He and Moses and Nehemiah, we didn't get into the chapter that I had intended, but it was a good chapter nonetheless. And Mark, thank you for reading this great chapter. Great reading. But Nehemiah, just like the Apostle Paul, constantly being accused and threatened because he's telling them, Repent. Repent of your sin. And so the church is continuing to harass them as a result. But Paul's not being the Grinch. He has opened his heart. He has enlarged his heart for them. But he says, no, you've been the one that's been acting like the Grinch. We haven't been a hindrance to you. You're the one who's put a hindrance. You're the one who's blocked your heart and you have hindered yourself from even listening to what we have to say. He says, open your heart wide to us. We've opened our heart to you. 
You know, it, it never fails when we actually have to correct someone, especially if we have to discipline someone in some nature. And uh, when we explain to the church what has happened as, as best as we can, given the, the, the facts that we're allowed to share, it never fails. There's someone in the church, sometimes a few people in the church, who all of a sudden becomes the best friend of the person who's accused and then hate us for daring to try to challenge them in their sin. It, it happens often. I mean, literally, the person may not have had a friend in the world, now they got five friends. And then now, all of a sudden, I'm the devil for daring to try to tell, hey, maybe, 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 maybe you've sinned. I mean, I, I, I do. I sort of compare it with, I mean, in this day and age, it's sort of like, you know, if for some reason a police officer apprehends a criminal, who's at fault? The police officer. 99 times out of 100, if the police officer did something wrong, he had to have done something wrong. Of course he's done something wrong. It's, it's the same with any aspect of authority in our culture today. This is the spirit of our age. Do not trust authority. The criminals are the innocent ones. And those who are trying to tell the truth and try to hinder crime, they're the ones that are the awful, evil people. Over and over again. But is that love? Is that the spirit of love? Is that the spirit? No. I mean, who, was, who first started this? Think about it. Go back to the Garden of Eden. Who's the first person to say the person in authority is wrong and you're right? So what Satan says to Eve in the garden, right? Well, he, he obviously had some bad intentions, and that's why he did what he did. And, and then when they finally do commit sin, they go around and they each start blaming somebody else. It's not my fault. Eve says it's the serpent's fault. Adam says it's... It's Eve's fault. But then notice he throws in there, and it's your fault, God, for giving her to me. Really? Over and over and over again. This seems to be the spirit of our age. We've clearly bought into the lie of the devil over and over again. Somehow those who have tried to speak up for the truth, those who are in authority, they're automatically assumed to be the evil one. Don't buy into that spirit. There are times in which there is a dirty cop. There are times in which there is a false teacher, and they ought to be readily seen and pointed out and brought to justice. But don't assume that that's always the case, just because you've seen it once or twice on television, because you can always believe what you see on TV. That's not the case. Normally, a church ought to open her heart up to her leaders, just as a, a normal citizen ought to look at a cop with respect. This ought to be the case. There's a reason, though, that the Apostle Paul gives this admonition to Timothy. When Timothy is ordaining elders in the city of Ephesus, Paul tells him to make sure that he explains this part very well. First Timothy chapter 5, he says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Why is he saying that? Why does he, why does he point out the elder and not the deacon or not some other member of the church? Why does he say, well, you have to have two or three witnesses to go against this guy? Is it because we're always circling the wagons? No. It's because the Apostle Paul knows that if an elder in the church dares to confront someone in their sin... There will always be some sinners who merely want the spotlight off of themselves and they'll point it right back at him. And they'll say all sorts of lies and all sorts of evil things. And I have been 
under this before, and I'm sure most pastors have, where all of a sudden the whole church is hearing about sin that you've never committed. How do you defend against that when it's one person saying it? Why does the church even entertain that without having some corroborating evidence? Does not everybody deserve their day in court? In this case, he makes it very explicit. Do not automatically assume evil of an elder because the elder is having to confront sin. He's going to be accused more often than not than anyone else in the church because that's part of his job. And sinners, again, as a rule, don't tend to like being pointed out as sinners. They don't want to hear it. So we have to be very careful with these types of things. That, that's Paul's message in a nutshell, if you will. But, but I, I want to urge you, if there's any elder in this church that you have closed your heart to, or pastor for that matter, do the dirty work and go up to them and talk to them. Right? Don't just hold on to a grudge and be bitter against them for years and years and years and then walk away from the church, and then go to some other church, and then do it all over again somewhere else. The Scripture is very plain. Go talk to him. If you can't get satisfaction, then go to the next place if you can get satisfaction there. If not, then you have good reason to leave a church if the church is not willing to do these types of things. They're not willing to talk about real things and deal with real sin. But if you're just holding some assumption in your heart about something he's done or something that he said, if you hadn't got satisfied, go talk to him. And if you can't talk to him, find another elder who can help you talk to him. But don't just close your heart to this guy. There's a reason he says these things, you see. It's, it's simply not fair for anyone, not, and not just elders, but anybody in the church. I mean, again, we're, we're coming to the communion table, and we, we say that we have reconciliation with God, and reconciliation with each other, but then you have people that really don't reconcile and that refuse to reconcile, refuse to admit their sin, refuse to talk to anyone, yet still sit there smugly and saying, I'm a Christian. I'm calling your bluff. It's not true. If you don't do the work and say, you know, I've sinned or I need to go confront the one who has said, what does he say? Lay aside your gift of the altar. Go make it right with your brother. There's no reason to continue to hold on to these types of grudges. There's just no call for that. It's just, this is why people don't like churches. Two-faced, hypocritical. I wouldn't like it either. And so he, he urges us, open your hearts to each other. You've opened your heart to God. Open your heart to each other. But particularly, open your hearts to those in leadership, to those who who are elders, pastors, and churches. He said, why? Because the writer of Hebrews says, because they're going to be held accountable on the day of judgment for your soul. He says, so make their job a joy and not a matter of groaning. That's not of any benefit to you, he says. One last thing I'll say, and I'll, I'll let you go. I do want to apologize to anyone here who has ever been hurt by a pastor or an elder, and maybe even by me. Come talk to me if I have. Um, but I tell you, it, it, it's not meant to be the norm. It's not meant to be the way it is. We all fail. We all fall short. We're humans. But if you have a, a, a legitimate pastor, a legitimate elder in the church, 
He wants to open his heart to you. And I, I think you want to open your heart to him. But continue to, to pray that we would be the type of church that could speak the truth in love. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, another difficult passage that you've given us this morning. We know that um, it's very easy for us to um, think of other people that might be struggling with these things right now and, and to not acknowledge the things that are in our own hearts. We know it's also easy for us to be thinking about lunch and going on our merry way because we can't see any immediate application to this. But we do pray, Lord, that you would help us to meditate upon these things, not just in terms of pastors, but just in terms of our own character that if, if we have examples to follow and we're seeking to follow that example, we ought to be growing in holiness and sanctification. We ought to be speaking the truth in love. We ought to be confronting others in their sin. We ought to be willing to humble ourselves when people confront us over our sin. We pray, Father, that you would give us a real faith and repentance that would be demonstrated in this way. We ask that you would help us to grow in a deeper, more intimate fellowship with the Holy Spirit who helps us to bear these types of fruit as we seek to watch and pray for your kingdom to come. We pray in Jesus' name.